You're going to walk through the fire. I can just tell you that this morning. Oh, you didn't come to hear that today, but you are. And how wonderful to know that we never walk alone, that we always have a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus who walks through the fire with us. It's with that in mind that we take our Bibles this morning and once again come to the letter of James. James chapter number one this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you and you need one, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. There should be one close by. And we're on page 950, which is almost to the back cover of those pew Bibles. But find page 950 and you'll be right where we are this morning. By now you should know that most of the first chapter of James is devoted to that subject the fiery trials of life. Another word for trial is the word test. The word itself can be translated either way. A trial is, by biblical definition, a test. And a test, by biblical definition, is a trial. And we've made it very clear, not only in this series, as we've begun a journey through the first chapter of James, but really across the years, that faith is something that God will always test in the life of one of his children. God is never content with mustard seeds, uh, mustard seed grains of faith. He has a mission for your life to grow you into a person of like really big faith. Uh, the mustard seed is supposed to come the biggest of all of the garden trees, you remember Jesus said. And God will never be able to grow your faith into that gigantic place where birds can come and make their nest apart from stretching you from time to time. When I was a kid, we used to have a toy called Stretch Armstrong. Anybody old enough to remember Stretch Armstrong? Uh, it's a miracle we didn't cut Stretch Armstrong to find out what was inside. I'd have been smart enough not to do that, but my brother, my brother would have probably drank whatever was inside of Stretch Armstrong. But we had one, and we could pull him and contort him in all kinds of different directions, and sometimes it may feel like God does that with you. <clears throat> Neither the word trial or test are warm, fuzzy words, are they? Uh, when we think about tests, we think about those things that used to cause us to drink Maalox when we were in high school and and college, the most fearful words I ever heard and still wake me up in the middle of the night today are the words, put your papers away and pull out a clean sheet of paper. This is a pop test. And you remember those days. I remember the story about the guy one time who was in his college freshman biology class. And those classes at big universities tend to have two or 300 people in them. Everybody goes in as a pre-med. And those freshman biology classes oftentimes become what they call weed-out classes, and the professor makes things intentionally hard in order to differentiate the grown-ups from the children, those who are really serious about it. And he was giving his class a test on the ornithology section of their biology term. That's the study of birds. The student went in there and he had studied everything he knew to study. When he got the test, he saw 25 block pictures of 25 different sets of bird legs. And the professor had asked them to identify the species of bird by nothing more than 25 different pictures of bird legs. A student had had it. He thought, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm not even messing with this. I'm done with it. And he took his clean 
test paper, walked right up to the professor's front desk in front of all those students, slammed the paper down, said, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen, turned and began to walk out the door. And the professor took umbrage with that and he tried to stop him. He said, stop, young man. You can't just walk out of my class. You're going to get a zero for this, but I've got to know who you are. Tell me what your name is. The student turned around at the doorway, pulled up both Britch's legs and said, you tell me. Many times when we go through the difficulties of life, we sometimes get the mistaken notion that God's out to harm us. That God's trying to weed us out in some way, shape, or form. Why is God doing this to me? Well, let me remind everybody, the Bible says here in James chapter 1 that we can count it all joy when we fall into various trials, knowing that God has a purpose in those trials. The testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be complete totally lacking in nothing. Then, of course, we learned last week that as we're going through the trials of life, if we lack wisdom, all we have to do is ask the giving God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Today, as we come to the middle of James chapter 1, I want us to look at the subject that I've entitled Life's Most Common Test. I think you'll understand why we title it that way, because these are tests that have to do with money. Anybody here ever have the struggle with money? You know, the reason that money and the things money can buy are the most common tests that believers typically ever face is because money and the things money can buy can be a challenge to us if we don't have enough of it, and it can be a challenge if we have more than enough of it. Isn't that right? So let's take a look and see what James has to say, whether we have a little or a lot, about life's most common test. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Short passage today. Here's what it says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, as flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Mark this down today. Poverty is a test of faith, and wealth is a test of faith. Money and the things money can buy are powerful influences in the lives of just about everybody I know. There is a reason that the Bible has so much to say, particularly our Lord Jesus Christ, about how we approach money, how we view money, our attitude toward money, our actions with respect to money, because our Lord knew that he would have no greater potential idol in all of life than that of money. No man can serve two masters, Jesus said. You cannot serve God and money. You must make a choice. And... One thing about money and material possessions is that they can potentially compromise a follower of Jesus and his wholehearted commitment to the Lord. Eric talked last week about the language of James in the previous passage concerning being a double-minded man or woman. 
Well, nothing causes double-mindedness in the Christian life more than things associated with money and material wealth. That's true when times are so tight that you begin to doubt God. And it's also true when times are so good that you begin to trust your money more than you trust God. Both of those extremes are what's highlighted here in the passage that we're reading in James chapter 1 this morning. And the first thing that I would simply remind you is that many are tested by the lack of resources. That's what we're confronted with right out of the gate here in verse 9. As James begins by saying, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, there are four very critical words in that short sentence. The first, of course, is the word brother. You may want to underscore that because that identifies James's audience with respect to this particular command. And of course, he's talking to Christian folk, right? And so by using the word brother, it obviously describes a person who belongs to the family of God, somebody that's trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord for the gift of eternal life. The second word to note here is the word lowly. This is not only a brother, it's a lowly brother, uh, specifically a person of lowly condition of some kind. That word lowly is often attached to different character types throughout the New Testament. We read, for example, about the lowly widow in the Bible, or we read about <clears throat> the lowly orphan in the Bible, or the lowly slave in the Bible, or the lowly leper. In the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Mary, as she sings this song of exaltation of the Lord, considers herself as someone of lowly estate. So it's somebody that's down on the very bottom rung of the socioeconomic spectrum. Here, when James uses the word lowly, he's talking about lowly in a socioeconomic standpoint, the lowly poor. He's talking about a poor person. And so we could well translate the passage, let the poor brother boast in his exaltation. This is a person of humble or lowly means. And no doubt, James is thinking of many people in his own congregation. As we've made clear, James is a pastor writing to scattered brothers and sisters in the Lord. His church has been dispersed out of Jerusalem because of persecution, and they've gone all over the general area. And so he's writing them this letter. And many of those people who have been scattered, no doubt, have fallen on hard times. Doesn't that make sense? They're dispossessed socially. Maybe they're having to stay with friends or Jewish brethren in the Lord who are opening their home to them because of hospitality. And so many of them are likely facing financial hardship. And what's important to note here is that they, as per usual with James, the same James that says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. James does not commiserate with these people in their poverty. It's almost like he congratulates them because of their position. Count it all joy when you fall into abject poverty. I'm pretty sure you didn't come to church to hear that either this morning. That's kind of like what he's saying here. He doesn't actually say that, <clears throat> but what he does say is a word of reminder to the lowly poor person that he really isn't all that lowly and he really isn't all that poor. He's only poor in, from one perspective and he's only poor for a short period of time. He's really not all that lowly. He wants those people who are struggling and suffering, scattered all over the place. Many of them don't know where the next meal is coming from. He wants them to see their position as God sees it. Not as low, but as high. He doesn't want them focused 
on their material position. He wants them focused on their spiritual position. Let the lowly brother boast in his what? Exaltation. And that's the fourth word that we mentioned here, the third actually. The word exaltation means to lift up to be of a high place. It carries with it spiritually a vision of heaven itself. James is casting their attention away from their earthly plight onto their heavenly future when he uses the word exaltation. That word conjures up images of resurrection. It's used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ who's been exalted by God to the highest place where God has given him the name that is above every name, that at his name in this high, exalted, enthroned, ensconced position as King of kings and Lord of lords, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. James uses the same language applied to Jesus and applies it to the lowest of the low on the world's totem pole. And so the reason that he does that is because every person who's been born again by faith already has an exalted position because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in the book of <clears throat> Ephesians chapter two that God has taken people who are dead in trespasses and sin, uh, in sins and made them alive together with Christ and raised them up and has made them to sit together in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He's using the present tense to describe all of those privileges, not the future tense. How many of you here know the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you say amen? How many of you here who know the Lord Jesus Christ believe you're going to heaven when you die? Would you say amen? Can I let you in on a little secret this morning? In a very real sense, you're already there. You're already there. God has raised us up. The Bible doesn't say God will raise us up, although he will. He says God has raised us up. And God has made us to set together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is a language form that basically says it's so sure to happen that I'm going to express it as if it already has. So if you've been saved, you've already been elevated to this high spiritual exalted status that nothing can ever take away from you. And it's all because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful this morning the Bible says nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Aren't you thankful that our Lord Jesus said no man can snatch them out of my hand. God has given us an inheritance that can never perish. Never perish. You know what never perish means? Never perish. How about that? I mean, your heavenly reward can never perish, never spoil, never fade away. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. Kept in heaven for you. Shielded by the power of God. That's what the Bible says. You're as good as already there. And that's what James is referring to when he tells these who are struggling Many in the most extreme kind of way. Don't fret too much about it. Life is hard and I know it, but I'm going to supply all your need according to my riches in glory. You can trust me for the next meal. You can trust me for cover on your back and a roof over your head. You can trust me for all of that. You may not have as much as you may want in this life, but the next life is coming. And believe you me, there's going to be plenty when you get there. And because of the work that I've done in Christ, you're as good as already there. Therefore, 
James says to the lowly, go ahead and boast. You say, well, preacher, I didn't think we were supposed to boast. No, that's the fourth word that he uses right here. Let the lowly brother, what? Say it out loud. Boast in his what? In his exaltation. So this is appropriate boasting. Most of the time we're told not to do that because most of the time when we boast, we're boasting in usins, right? My boasting has something to do with me, my success, my life, my accomplishments, my kids, my family, me, 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 it's all about me. But James is not encouraging that kind of boasting here. James is encouraging a kind of boasting that's directed toward not what I've done, but what God has done for me in Christ. All of this business about saving me and raising me up and making me to sit together in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. That's what we're to boast about. Let him who boasts, the Bible says, boast, what? In the Lord. That's right. And that's always a good thing. James will say it like this himself in James 2 and verse 5. Notice it with me this morning. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in what? Rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. Now, this is exactly the point that Jesus was making with his parable, very famous parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Y'all remember that story, don't you? It's only found in the Gospel of Luke. It's in Luke 16. And like this statement here in James chapter 1, the parable is a story between two extremes. It's a story between a very wealthy man and a very poor man that Jesus tells. And Lazarus, of course, was that poor man. In fact, he was a homeless man, had sores all over his body, didn't own a thing in his life. His body was racked with painful disease, totally dependent on the scraps that were discarded from this wealthy man's table. And Lazarus, the poor man, who has nothing in this life, dies. And the story fast forwards to the age to come. And when Jesus tells the story, he tells the story from the perspective, not of this life, but of the next life. And where do we find Lazarus in the age to come? Lazarus, the poor beggar, where do we find him? We find him having been carried by the angels to a place Jesus calls Abraham's bosom. That's exactly the same place Jesus identified as paradise to the thief on the cross, the very same place that we euphemistically refer to as heaven today. Lazarus was a humble and lowly beggar, but he was right with God. Somebody say amen. And that's what made him rich. It's what made him rich in the realm of the spirit. And when he died, even though he was a lowly man, this side of heaven. On the other side, he was exalted to a high place. While the rich man, the rich man whose name isn't even given, the rich man, exalted as he was in this life, went to the next life humbled, lowly, to a tormented existence in a place Jesus called Hades. So when it comes to the trials and the tests of life, many believers are tested by the lack of resources. In fact, all of us probably are at some time or another. Judy and I remember the day when we first got married. Man, we didn't have chump change to our name. And if we'd have missed a paycheck, we'd have been in a world of hurt. We remember those days. Life was tight. 
And so most of us at least go through a little season like that, and then sometimes it gets really tight and life becomes a struggle. But when it does, remember, this is a test. And passing the test means learning to trust God to meet your needs. Do you believe God will stay true to his promises? That's what it amounts to. The same God who says, I will supply. When we're going through a financial test, that's what's on the line. So stay focused. Stay focused on the better life to come. Boast in the reality of your faith that has afforded you an exalted status in the place that really counts, the kingdom of God. So that's the first thing that we are confronted with here. But as you might imagine, while some are tested by a lack of resources, two, others are tested by an abundance of resources. Having a lot can be just as much a test as having a very little. Because where the lowly poor is to boast in his spiritual exaltation, James says here in verse 10, let the rich boast in his humiliation. Now, we have to supply the word boast there because the text literally says, let the rich in his humiliation. But we know he's talking about the same kind of boasting. If the rich have anything to boast about, James says, conversely, let that person who is so high and mighty this side of heaven boast in their humiliation. There's a play on words there because the word humiliation is from the same word that's translated lowly in the previous verse to describe the poor. So it's almost like James is saying, let the lowly poor boast in his future exaltation and let the exalted rich boast in his coming lowliness. Now, one word you don't find in verse 10 is the word brother. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, but let the rich, absent the word brother, boast in his humiliation. So the big interpretive question is, is James talking to a believing rich man or woman? Or is he talking to an unbelieving rich man or woman? Those in the Bible who depend on their wealth that tend to oppress poor people by nature, like the guy in the parable we just talked about a moment ago. It's really hard to determine exactly what James is talking about here, whether this rich person is a brother like the poor person or not, but how you interpret that affects the way that you understand what he says in the rest of the, of, of the verse. What happens to the rich person as described in the rest of the passage when the hot sun comes out and when the burning winds begin to blow and when the grasses and the flowers begin to burn, get burned up by them. Here's the thing. I'm going to give you two alternatives this morning so that you can help me better understand what this passage is actually teaching. Amen? The structure of the statement seems to imply that it is a rich brother. Because if James is talking about a lowly brother in one person, uh, in one uh, verse, it seems best to just import the word brother that he's talking about them both. I mean, after all, James is writing a letter to his scattered what? To his church, that's right. So he's really not addressing the world here per se. He's writing to his community of faith. And so it probably makes best sense to see this uh, as a fellow brother because not all of those people who were scattered uh, were scattered of lowly means. The church did have some people of great means. And so there were people who went to an adjacent town or an adjacent province or whatever the case might be. Then the first place that they went to 
was the Sea of Galilee Hilton. You know what I'm saying? And they probably flashed their American Express gold card and said, look, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but give me a room for the next 30 days. There were probably people like that. Well, kind of like that. You get what I'm saying, don't you? Amen. So there were some wealth people, uh, wealthy people in the, in the family of God. But if that's the case, it makes it hard to interpret it because if they're Christian brothers, what's the point of referring to their coming humiliation? Let the rich brother boast in his humiliation. Well, I thought there was no condemnation to those who were in Christ Jesus. Hey, hey, hey. So it makes it kind of hard to properly interpret the passage if that's the case. But I think the thing that we can understand it, if that's the case, if James is talking to wealthy people in the family of God, He's probably doing so trying to help them to understand that in this time of stress, one thing you can't do is depend on your money to get you through it. Because here's the thing, if you're placing a higher degree of trust in your money and in your resources than you are in the Lord, it's going to affect your Christian walk in a negative kind of way. And so James doesn't want their money that's given them so much advantages in life He doesn't want that to become something that becomes more valuable to them than their relationship to God himself. And he wants them to understand that even though they're wealthy and the world kind of looks at them in a different light than those who are poor, it's almost kind of like Solomon was communicating in Ecclesiastes. He wants them to understand, you know what? You and your money are going to perish You're going to die, and you're going to enter into a new wave of life that's described by eternity. And that money that you're putting so much of your trust in is not going to bring you one iota's worth of advantage when it comes to your standing before God or your position in the kingdom of God. Beginning here in verse 10, James compares the rich man or the woman with the grasses and the flowers of the field. Let the rich boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the, uh, uh, like a flower, uh, of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls uh, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So it's like that blade of grass. We're all just blades of grass in God's field of life. And whether you're rich or whether you're poor, it doesn't matter. You're going to pass away in the end. That's the point. And it may come sooner rather than later. That phrase scorching heat may refer to scorching wind. It's the same word in the Greek New Testament, which is a reference to those hot Arabian winds that come blowing through out of nowhere. And what happens is they end up burning everything up. All the vegetation that at one time was lush and beautiful ends up getting burned up and gone tomorrow. And James's point is this is the plight of the rich. You can be here today, prosperous, flowering, beautiful. Everything's coming up roses. And then God requires your life tomorrow. Everything's gone. Your money's not going to keep you from getting sick. So why would you trust it? Your money is not going to keep your kids from becoming rebellious. So why would you trust it? Your money is not going to keep the stock market from 
potentially collapsing in the future. So why would you trust it? And even more to the point, your money's not going to keep you from dying. And that's why you can't trust it. And that's the source of their humiliation. This reality that my money's not as significant as I'm making it out to be. Y'all see what I'm saying? Humble yourself before the Lord. James will say that in chapter 4. Humble yourself before the Lord. Don't come before the Lord proud and haughty and mighty because of all the good things that you've done in this life. And so if this is a Christian brother who's wealthy, what James is doing here is using what's known as hyperbole, exaggerated speech in order to shock the person into a better sense of reality about what's really important in life. You may be top of the heap here in this life. Everybody may be singing your praises. Everybody may want to be like you in this life. But you won't be that way in the coming kingdom. I read a story about the Navy chaplain that was walking one day with an admiral. Some of y'all are Navy folk in the house today. You'll appreciate this. And the admiral was getting on up there in years. He was thinking about retiring. And he was starting to get serious about thinking about spiritual things. And he developed a friendship with this Navy chaplain And he said, you know, I'm intrigued about heaven. I want to know more about it. What can you tell me about heaven? And the chaplain looked back at the admiral and said, well, the first thing that I can tell you is you won't be an admiral when you get to heaven. That's kind of a bold thing to say, isn't it? But you know what? He's absolutely right. I mean, you've heard the statement, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. One of these days we're all going to be together and we're not going to be divided by rich and poor We're not going to be divided by chain of command. We're not going to be divided by corporate hierarchy or social divisions. We're not going to be marked by any of that stuff because we're all equal when it comes to matters of eternity. The low will be made high and the the high will be what? Made low. So here's the thing. If you're a believer who's materially blessed, uh, James would encourage you, make sure you're keeping the right perspective. Make sure you're trusting Jesus. Make sure you're trusting him more than you trust your money. Like the old adage says, use money, but trust Jesus. Amen. And most people who have means, even within the house of God, are more accustomed to using Jesus while trusting their money. And that's to get the, heart, uh, the cart before the horse. Don't do that, James would say. Always honor God and always make it a point to bless others when it comes to your material possessions in this life. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, and he's talking about rich believers. He's writing to Timothy who's leading the church at Ephesus and he's saying, as for the rich in your congregation, the rich in this present age, Verse 18, they are to what? Do good, to be rich in good works, and to be what? Say it out loud. Generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So that's one way to look at it. When James says, let the rich boast in his humiliation, He's talking about rich people within the family of God having a right perspective and learning to use their money in ways that are noble and helpful and generous. 
but trust God with their life because they're really no different from the poor in terms of mortality and we're all given account before the judgment seat of Christ. Everybody tracking with me, say amen. But it could be that he's talking about the worldly rich, what's sometimes called the wicked rich. And James is actually gonna make that connection later in the, in the letter because there are rich worldly folk who oppress and abuse those of us within the family of God. There are times where the word rich is used harshly in the Bible. It's used negatively in the Bible. And if it's the wicked rich that James is referring to here, then all this humiliation is much easier to understand, isn't it? If he's talking about the unsaved rich, their humiliation is going to happen when they get at the judgment. And so James is using sarcasm here. All this language about hot sun and burning winds and you looking good one minute, but the fire coming to you at the next and you're going to be consumed. That's just all a biblical picture of judgment, isn't it? And so that's absolutely true as well. Whereas if the first interpretation is correct, James is using hyperbole to make it a point to shock the wealthy rich back into a sense of sobriety about their wealth. If it's the wicked rich, man, he's using biting sarcasm. And he's basically saying, here's the thing, boast in your humiliation, go ahead. Go ahead, boast in all that material prosperity, but understand this, in the long run, your security and the source of your boasting in this life is gonna be your ultimate ruin in the next life. Just as the sun and the scorching wind come along and burn up the flowers of the field, one of these days God's going to come along and he's going to require your life. And both you and your money will be consumed at the judgment. Now to me, that seems a little bit easier to interpret and to understand. And here's the thing. Is that true? Is that true, Hillcrest family? Yes! Everything that I'm sharing this morning is truth. We're trying to figure out which one of the two James is talking about, but the reality is, in one sense, it really doesn't matter because either way you look at it, the outcome is absolutely right. Jesus tells another parable, for example, in Luke 12, where two brothers come to him and they're fighting over an inheritance. I know that never happens Man, they're, 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 they're having a family feud over an inheritance. And this is a, a, another parable that has to do with material wealth, also only found in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 12. And Jesus states the conclusion before he tells a story, which he sometimes does. Because sometimes we're spiritually hard and we need help up front. So before I tell you the story, I'm going to tell you what it means. And that's Luke 12 and 15. Here's the conclusion before the parable. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his what? Of his possessions. And then he goes into telling the story that supports the conclusion. It's a story of a rich man who kept amassing so much stuff. This is the first hoarder that ever lived, I think. So he keeps buying stuff, he's well-to-do, he's prospered, and he says, you know what? We've run out of room in the attic, let's build a barn. And he builds a storage barn in the back. 
And one of his sons comes to him later on and says, you know what, we've run out of room in the storage barn. The guy said, well, here, here's $500, go build another one. And he builds another one. That one gets filled up with the stuff of life. And then the same thing happens. Go build another one. He keeps having to build all these barns, bigger and bigger, to store all of the stuff that he's amassing this side of heaven. The world looked at that man and they saw him as an absolute what? Success. Here's a guy that's made it. And yet, you remember, we're not going to read the parable because it's too long to read, but you remember Jesus uses one word to describe that man. Anybody remember the word? Fool. Fool. And why did he call him a fool? Because he never considered that he was going to die. And not only did he never consider that he was going to die, he never considered that death might actually come abruptly and quickly, which is exactly what happened. Jesus said he was a fool because He didn't think about things eternal. And when death came, he was unprepared to meet it. Verse 21, so this is the one, Jesus says, who lays up treasure for himself and is not, say it out loud together, please, and is not rich toward God. He's foolish because that's what fools do. They put their trust in things that don't last. And can I make a statement? Money and the things money can buy don't last. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Bank and investment accounts don't last. Houses and properties don't last. I mean, we worship a Savior who apparently didn't own anything more than the clothes on his back, best we can tell. Didn't have a place to lay his head. And he saw all of that kind of stuff that the man was putting in all these barns. He didn't see that stuff as evil. The Bible doesn't say that money and the things money can buy are evil. But Jesus does couch them in terms of liability. They they can be severe liabilities. People think they need them to be free. But truthfully, most people become enslaved by them. Isn't that right? They become enslaved by their stuff. The freest people, you know the freest people in the world, are y'all still with me? Say amen. You know the freest people in the world are? The givers. The givers. The people that live with an open hand, not tight, clenched fists, but the people that live like this. Toward God and toward others, those are the freest people of all. They see others as their equal. They see heaven as their gain. They see generosity as their goal. Those are the free people. Proverbs 28, verse 25. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be what? Will be enriched. Now, truthfully, when he addresses the rich here, you say, okay, pastor, where we're gonna land. I think they're church folk. I think they're Christian. I think that's the best way to read the grammar of the passage. But having said that, everything that I just spent the last seven or eight minutes talking about is absolutely biblical true as well, all right? So let me do it this way. Let's conclude our little discussion this morning by synopsizing them in three very concise takeaways. Are you ready? Say amen. 
Here's the bottom line message in three bullet points today. First, if you're a believer and you have financial challenges, remember your exalted status as a child of the living God. You're rich beyond measure and never forget that. You're rich where it really counts. You're rich in things that money will never be able to buy. In the kingdom of God, the low will be made high. The humble will be made low. Or the the proud will be made low. So if you're struggling financially, take heart. Remember that God has promised to meet all your needs and you need to trust him and remember that a better day's coming. Keep your eyes fixed on the eternal kingdom. Second, if you're a believer and you're blessed with material prosperity, never allow your money to become more of a priority than either God or other people. Did y'all hear me say amen? And the reason I ask for an amen there is because just about everybody in the room today would be considered a wealthy person. Oh, you don't have to be Bill Gates to be a wealthy person. I mean, like when the average annual income of somebody around the world is like $600 a year. Somebody in here this morning tell me they ain't wealthy. Okay? No, we got more stuff and we know what to do with. Just about everybody in here has got an attic full of stuff. Hey, hey, hey. And maybe a barn or two even. And that speaks volumes. What you want to make sure is you got your priorities correct. Never allow your money to become more of a priority than either God or others because you're not going to be a privileged person in heaven. Oh, we'll all be privileged in heaven. You won't be privileged in a distinct kind of way in heaven. Let's put it like that. So be on guard against greed. Live according to kingdom principles today. Watch out for greed. Honor God with your wealth. Be a giver. Live generously. Step in and meet the needs of others when you can. And then finally, if you're an unbeliever blessed with material wealth, if you're here and you don't know the Lord and the Lord has blessed you anyway, would you understand that God's trying to get your attention? He's showing you grace you don't deserve and you need to realize that eternity is at stake. And let me tell you something, your money can't save you. Your success can't save you. Your status in the world's eyes will never be able to save you. That's why if you're trusting in your money as your sole security, you are building a house on shifting, unstable, unreliable sand. Only Christ can guarantee a forever future in the place called kingdom of God. Only Christ has shed his blood to give you what money cannot ever buy. And that is the gift of everlasting life. So trust him to save you and then use the stuff God blesses you with in a way that honors him and blesses others. For some, the absence of resources is a great trial. For others, the abundance of resources is a great trial. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, in either situation, The scriptures would have us focus not on the here and now, but to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and to keep our eyes focused on the kingdom of God where the low will be made high and the high will be made 
low. This is the word of God. And let all God's people say, amen.